it's possible in one's life to perfect a certain kind of grace which combines an awareness of just what's happening in the moment with an appreciation of the pattern of the unfolding. In other words, to be fully attentive to the particular experience that's happening in the moment and also to have almost an aesthetic appreciation of the relationship of all one's experience to one another. What Trungpa called the aerial view of what's going on. Often we lose the balance we can get so caught in the particular that our life or our practice can get somewhat cold or indifferent or uninteresting. You can get so caught in the particular as to have a very contracted view of things which is exemplified by the person becoming so mindful of the movement in pouring the tea that the cup overflows. Losing that sense of a larger view, losing the sense of relationship of things. Likewise, it's possible to get lost in the pattern. We can be so imbued with the unfolding of the plan of our life that we don't pay attention at all to what's actually going on right now, always waiting for the next day, the next week, how things are going to be, getting caught in the plan rather than being grounded in the moment. There's a balance there as is characteristic of the entire practice, learning to find that balance. The way, one of the ways in which this balance is expressed is in terms of a mandala. A mandala is a picture or a pictorial representation of a group of things in a certain relationship to one another. And in the Tibetan tradition, they make very important use of the mandala as objects of meditation, as ways of focusing the awareness both on the particular things within the mandala and the mandala as a whole. You know, it's the same principle that's involved in almost any activity, in dance, in Tai Chi, in painting, in poetry. There's the individual unfolding experiences within a larger form. In order to have an appreciation of the form, you have to perfect the moment-to-moment experience. But in order to actualize each experience, you have to have an awareness of the entire form in which it's happening. A mandala, 
It's possible to make our lives, to experience our lives as a mandala, to experience that totality. When Sansanim, the Zen master, was here, I believe he and Richard talked a little bit about what they called the Zen circle. I'd like to elaborate on that circle, that mandala, from a slightly different perspective, although I think you'll, you'll see the similarity. It's what I call the mandala of insight, which is the pattern which unfolds, the pattern which can be experienced through the development of insight, through the development of the practice, to see the rhythm, the different events in the unfolding until you have a totality of viewpoint. And I think it's helpful, will be helpful in your understanding a lot of what you go through in your practice, both in these couple of months and as it unfolds in the next few years. Zero degrees, right, the bottom of the circle. Can take zero degree to mean people living in the world totally involved in the world of concept, not experiencing things as they are, not experiencing the impermanence, but caught in the illusion of the concept of things, caught by greed and by hatred, by reactiveness, the comparing mind, the judging mind. Basically, it's the world of dukkha. Right? There's a lot of suffering in that state. You can feel, and you know from your own practice, when you're involved and identified in a reactive state, when you're identified with the comparing mind or the judging mind, it's very contracted, it's tight. The whole system tightens and it's painful, it hurts. Part of zero degrees is living in the world with a strong self-image, which you have to put a lot of energy into maintaining the way you're presenting yourself to the world, which in turn rests on the very concept of self. Right? The idea that not only do we have a self-image, but we hold on very strongly to the idea that underneath that image there is actually someone there. That's all zero degrees on the circle. What happens is that people begin to experience the tension of being contracted. They begin to feel the pain of living in those states of mind. So begin to look for various possibilities, various alternatives. <clears throat> there are lots of motivations for beginning to practice, for beginning to see. It can be because life hurts, right? And we want to do something about it. It could be out of faith or devotion, <clears throat> could be out of a philosophical interest, could be out of a wanting to know. 
I'll put in a story here, <coughs> which illustrates the fact that motivation does not matter in terms of what gets us started, what, what begins us on the path. I'll try to abbreviate it. When the Buddha was enlightened, he went back to his hometown and he met his cousin there who was about to be married to this beautiful princess. And just on the day that the marriage was going to take place, the Buddha goes to the town and starts to teach. The cousin, out of respect, takes the Buddha's bowl, intending to follow him for the day and then give him back the bowl and marry his beautiful bride. The day goes on, he's following the Buddha around. Buddha starts to walk back to where they were staying in the forest, doesn't say anything to the cousin. The cousin's following, following along. Now get back to the forest, the Buddha says to his cousin, wouldn't you like to become a monk? His cousin actually didn't want to become a monk at all. There was this beautiful princess back in the palace and this was his wedding day and he was full of passion and desire. But just in the moment, you know, through the overpowering presence of the Buddha and the peacefulness, he agreed. In a rash moment. <laughs> he shaved his head, he put on the robes, he becomes ordained in the order of monks, and he tries to practice. And in doing the walking and doing the sitting, rising, falling, princess. <laughs> rising, falling, that's all he can think of. And his mind is continually going back to his princess in the palace. Finally the Buddha comes to know of it and decides that his cousin needs some help. She goes to the cousin, asks him about his practice, the cousin tells him. Through the great psychic power of the Buddha, he contrives to give his cousin a vision of one of the celestial realms. And there he sees beautiful celestial ladies. In the sutras they're called celestial nymphs, which has a slightly sexist <laughs> um, ring to it. But anyway, very beautiful ladies, bodies of light, luminous, bejeweled. And the Buddha asked his cousin, who's more beautiful, the princess back in the palace or these divine beings? He says, oh, compared to these divine beings, my princess is like a wild monkey. A little fickle. <laughs> a little hit of heaven. And <laughs> Buddha says, you practice with earnestness, and I promise you 500 of these celestial ladies. He became very earnest. <laughs> he was highly motivated right, to do it. He didn't let his mind wander. He stayed right with the lifting forward placing. And after a very short time, as the story goes, as most of them do, <laughs> he became enlightened. Right? He went back to the Buddha, releasing him from his promise. Right? It doesn't really matter why people get started or what their motivation is, as long as there's a certain sincerity in the practice. Okay, zero degrees. Beginning 
to see, beginning to examine what it is that keeps us bound in a contracted world space, mind space. Why is it that we're involved in that? One of the first things that you begin to experience is that what keeps us bound in that space is the constant dialogue that's going on in our minds. Our concepts, our words, our interpretations, our opinions about things. It's like there's no room for any kind of fresh perception. So what Don Juan said, whenever the dialogue stops, the world collapses, and extraordinary facets of ourselves surface, as though they had been kept heavily guarded by our words. You are like you are because you tell yourself you are that way. When the internal dialogue stops, when there's some space in the mind, very extraordinary facets of our being begin to surface, begin to see. Beginning to work our way around the circle, around the mandala, up towards 90 degrees. What is it that you see when you begin to look? Begin to see that everything's changing. It's all a flow of changing phenomena, mind, thoughts, emotions, feelings, sensations in the body. And with that first hit of impermanence <laughs> comes a great feeling of joy and liberation. Perhaps a mild feeling of joy and liberation. <laughs> <laughs> You begin not to take things so seriously. You know, all the problems, all the kinds of heavy thoughts that previously caused a lot of heaviness and concern and worry and anxiety, begin to see, even to some extent, as just being bubbles. as a rising and passing. There's a certain lightening effect. It's what Jack at the very beginning called the honeymoon period. Right? When you first begin to sit, for many people, although perhaps not for all of you, there is a certain excitement and wonder and joy at just beginning to see what it's all about. At a certain point in practice, just in this beginning time, it happens for many people that the factors of mindfulness and concentration and rapture and equanimity and calm get very strong and very intense. And often there's a lot of light in the mind, a lot of happiness. All of these things are called corruptions of insight. <laughs> Lest you get hooked on them. They're called corruptions of insight because not because they themselves are negative factors, but because of the liability to get stuck in that kind of joyful place. And there's more, there's a lot, many deeper levels to experience. What happens as you keep going around and you reach 90 degrees in this circle, the joy and the happiness of a first insight into things, first letting go, turns into fear and terror, the world collapses. 
You begin to see everything as dissolving. There's no security any place. There's nothing to hold on to. And it's terrible. And it's terrifying. This stage of practice, it's called rolling up the mat stage. Because the tendency for yogis at this time <laughs> is to roll up the mat and split. You know, they don't want to see it. It's so... It's so mind-boggling to realize that there is no security any place. That every, take, every place you take a stand, the, the rug's going to be pulled out from under you. And so you're constantly tumbling, you're constantly falling, with no place to get a handhold. Like being on the side of a mountain, and every place you try to hold on to, that handhold falls away. You try to grasp onto another one, and that falls away. And the first reaction to that kind of dissolution and rapidity of change is panic and terror. Right? What's happening? The world is totally disintegrating. Perhaps some of you have had that experience in different drug trips. It happens very intensely in the meditation practice. Working through that fear, working through that terror. It's like building an inner fire. Gurdjieff called, he stressed the importance of that inner fire in terms of breaking through the bonds that keep us contracted. It gets very intense at times. I'd like to read something from the Mumun Khan, which comes from the Zen tradition, and it's about this kind of intensity at this time. Bhutte was a Zen master in China in the 9th century. When he was young, he lived alone on a mountain doing meditation. One day, a nun happened to come by. According to the custom in China, when two people meet, they take off their hats and exchange greetings. This nun, however, did not follow the proper etiquette. She was impolite enough to walk around Bhutte three times without taking off her head covering, stood right in front of him and said, if you can tell me the word that satisfies me, I will take off my head covering. Gute, whose spiritual eye was unfortunately not yet open, could say nothing in reply. The nun immediately turned to leave. Gute called out, It is getting dark. Why don't you stay here overnight and start your trip tomorrow morning? The nun turned back and demanded again, I will stay if you can give me the word. Once again, Gute was unable to say anything, and the nun simply left him. Let me ask you, if you were to talk to the nun in place of Gute, how would you answer? 
Gute was now greatly ashamed of himself for having been unable to give an answer to the nun. He made up his mind to leave his mountain hut to visit various Zen masters and have further training to open his Zen eye. That night he had a dream in which a foreigner told him that a great master would be his teacher, would soon come to the hut. In accordance with the dream, Gute decided to remain on the mountain. Sure enough, ten days later, an old monk came by. Gute was convinced that this must be the master the dream had foretold, and he welcomed him with reverence. He told the old monk of his encounter with the nun and asked him what the fundamental word of Zen could be. The old monk, without saying anything, just stuck up his finger. This Gute was enlightened. The darkness in his mind was all dispersed and his spiritual eye was opened to a new vista. His biography just tells us, the old monk stuck up one finger and at this Gute had Satori. No detailed account is given of his inner struggle before getting Satori. Yet those who themselves have gone through hard training and searching will appreciate behind this short sentence the painful searching and striving Gute must have gone through before this moment of breakthrough was given to him. What is important here is not the lifted finger, but the intensity of the inner struggle Gute went through. In training, one has to strive to transcend the dualistic discriminating consciousness. One has to come to the ultimate extremity where any slightest touch may effect a great change in personality, so fundamental as to, to be described by saying, that the earth splits and mountains collapse. He has to plunge into the abyss of sheer darkness altogether, as an old master expressed it. When the old monk stuck up his finger, Gute must have been at his ultimate extremity. It goes on and on. Intensifying the perception who you are, intensifying and refining the awareness of the process in each moment through this period of the collapse of the world, where everything is disintegrating, there's nothing to hold on to, there's fear and panic and anxiety, and at that time, in contrast to rolling up the mat, to keep going, to to be very penetrating right through that space. This is then saying that in the beginning of practice, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. In the middle of practice, mountains are no longer mountains and rivers are no longer rivers. At the end of practice, there are again mountains and again rivers. 90 degrees on this mandala is like when there are no longer mountains and no longer rivers. You go out into the world and nothing is familiar, you don't know how to act. It's an interesting time. <laughs> it doesn't stay. It's just one more perspective, one more spot on this circle. Out of this intensity comes what's called the urge for deliverance. It's like the mind becomes desperate. There's no place at all that feels safe or secure. And all the mind wants to do is to somehow be delivered of that, that kind of insecurity, that kind of fear. 
the urge for deliverance becomes very strong, begin working your way around to 180 degrees, top of the circle. That fear and misery and disgust, the disintegration of everything, turns into a very peaceful, equanimous flow. You begin to see the mind, the body, not particularly as dissolving or disintegrating, but just as a just as a river, a gentle river flowing by. The mind is very rhythmic, very balanced. People at this time can sit for hours and hours at end. There's not much discomfort in the body. The perception is very sharp, very refined, very smooth. And it's out of this balance that one experiences what at 180 degrees, the top of the circle, could be called enlightenment or satori, Shunyata, emptiness, there are a million words for it. What that experience is, is the coming to the zero center of our being. Now, a mandala is a good, it's a good representation of ourselves, of our life. Mostly, we live our lives circling around the periphery. When the mind achieves a perfect balance, it's possible to drop to the center point. It's like hanging out, clinging, condemning, and being attached to all the things around the edge of the mandala, around the edge of our being. When you perfect a stillness and a balance, it's as if all of a sudden the mind just to the zero center. The center of a mandala is a point. A point has no dimensions. So in a very fundamental way, you can say that center point is not there. And yet, it's exactly that non-existent center point, that point of zero, which defines the entire mandala. It's the zero center point of our being which defines our lives. It gives definition to everything around the periphery. Perhaps you remember from the big mind game, it's a line from the Tibetan book of the Great Liberation, which it says that the one mind is but doesn't exist. The center of the mandala is but it doesn't exist doesn't exist in space, no dimensions to it at all. At 180 degrees on the circle, what happens through the development of that stage of equanimity, the mind drops into that zero point. At that point, there's a radical transformation of understanding of who you are. Before that, there's always the identification of self as being one or another things around the center, around the edge. Meaning, we identify with thoughts, with our body, with sensations, with emotions. From that point on in the practice, having come to that zero center, you see that you're none of the other things. That all of those are just phenomena arising and passing, circling around, having a certain place in the pattern.
This is from <coughs> Tartang Toko, who is a well-known Tibetan Rinpoche meditation master. It's a description of, one, of 180 on the circle. What exactly is this enlightenment mind? Enlightenment is not really something mysterious or otherworldly, but rather the result of an unrestricted and subtle awareness within the activity of our body, speech, and mind. It is a subtle energy that is not easily detected because of our own internal blockages. The current is stopped, dammed up within us. Though we speak of these energies on a physical level, they are not necessarily dependent on the laws governing physical substance. This enlightenment quality is not a thing. It has no fixed position, no substance we can point to. Its nature is more like open space. It is never an awareness of something, which could be just another projection of our self-image. Mind itself has no substance, it has no color and no shape, it has no form, no position, no characteristics, no beginning. It is neither within nor without. It cannot be discovered as this or that thing. It is not mixed together with other things, yet it is not apart from them. This mind cannot be discovered, invented, destroyed, rejected, or accepted. It is beyond reasoning and so-called logical processes. Discriminating awareness and intuition can lead us to the door of this unoriginated awareness, but through the door is a vastness beyond all that can be expressed, and can only be entered nakedly, for it is without beginning and without end, beyond time and beyond all existence. So therefore, finally, Nagarjuna, who is one of the most famous of the ancient Buddhist philosophers. So therefore, finally, Nagarjuna says, I do not accept anything, I do not reject anything. I am silent. This doesn't mean I have no answer. My answer is silent in the sense that everything is already speaking it. There's nothing more to say. The perfect answer is silence. There is no other word. The perfect condition, the perfect realization is totally silent. And that's my answer. That's my meditation. That silence of mind is the mind which experiences the fullness of one's life experiences the fullness of that mandala without any movement, without any comment. Chinese saying of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows all exist within that space. Everything is as it is. Everything is already speaking it, and yet the mind is silent. That's the 180 degrees on the circle. Don't stop there. You know, many people have that experience of silence, of stillness, of a very profound transformation, of coming to the center of their being, that zero center.
That's only halfway around. As you keep going, as you complete the unfolding of your life, you come to a place where you have to relate to the world, you have to relate to people. As long as you have a body and mind, that kind of relationship and communication has to be there. So 270 degrees on the circle, coming around, is the whole realm of communication. How do you relate from this new place? How do you express it? There are many ways, and they're exemplified and personified by some of the chief disciples of the Buddha. One way of expressing your experience is through the faculty of wisdom and intellect. That's personified by Sariputra, who was chief disciple of the Buddha and second only to him in wisdom. The whole teaching of the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, is said to have come. Tradition has it the Buddha taught it in one of the heaven worlds to his mother and then came down and gave Sariputra the gist of it and Sariputra elaborated it. <laughs> anyway, it's very characteristic of that kind of mind. Very intellectual, very analytical, using the intellect in a very penetrating way to express the Dharma. There, there are other ways of expressing it. Another way is the way of Moggallana, the other chief disciple, who represented tremendous power. He was foremost in terms of psychic power. And that's, that's expressing the Dharma, expressing one's silence in terms of color and energy and miracles. And you can play. You can play with all these things. Those of you who are familiar with some of the modern-day saints in India now, you can see these different ways of expression. Ramdas's guru, Maharaji, often would use that, the color of power, right, to force people to loosen up, right, to let go. Many, many stories of his manifesting in two places at one time and doing all... Oh, there's one wonderful story. An old sadhu came to see him. Sadhu is a wandering, a wandering yogi who, who has no possessions. And there are literally millions of sadhus in India. This one sadhu came to Maharaji to offer his respects. And Maharaji says, give me your money. And the sadhu is very taken aback and very, you know, well, we don't have any money, I'm just a poor sadhu. And anyway, Maharaji insists, and it turns out that the sadhu had 200 rupees, you know, <laughs> tucked away in his... Uh, <laughs> so he gives it to Maharaji, and Maharaji throws it in the fire. And the sadhu is very upset that that was his money, and he was going to go to this big mela, this big fair of sadhus and holy men, and that's how he was going to get there. He was very upset by it all. The story is that Maharaji reached into the fire and took out the 200 rupees, which had been burned up. 
gave it back to the sadhu. A lot of things are possible if you practice hard. (laughs) Use skillfully, and it's, it's very difficult, and there are very few people who can use power skillfully because of the great temptation to manipulate. But used through the vehicle of an enlightened mind, it can be a very powerful way right, of, of helping people, of communicating. Many, many stories like that. There's another way. And that's the way represented by Ananda, who's another of the great disciples of the Buddha, who manifested faith in devotion. And that faith in devotion made Ananda, as it said, the most lovable of the disciples. He was so filled with devotion, and that love space was so strong in him, that people were attracted to the, to the beauty and the love of that. That's another way of communicating. It's not power and it's not intellect. So there's no one way we have to be. We're going to all express the Dharma, all express our own realization and understanding through our different personalities, through our different strengths. And to understand that if it's based on the understanding of emptiness, of stillness, of silence, there are many ways to communicate, many ways to relate in the world. It's 270 degrees, it's still not the end. Come back to the bottom of the circle, which is now 360. To come full circle. Richard talked a little bit about it in terms of the ox herding pictures, you know, the Zen series of pictures which illustrates the spiritual path, is coming back to the marketplace. Coming back in the marketplace, totally ordinary, enlightening everybody by your look. (laughs) The quality of 360 degrees which resonates most in myself that quality expressed in the Taoist teachings of being invisible. Losing every trace, giving up every trace of spirituality, of holiness, of anything special at all. Going back to the marketplace, going back to the world, and being so empty that no one notices anything. There's nothing standing out at all really walking through the world very invisibly. There's a Taoist story which expresses that quality. It seems there was a very holy man living in the forest, and he was so holy and pure that the birds would drop flowers on him. His vibration was so powerful and it just attracted that kind of energy. The birds of the devas, had always, he was living in this rain of flower petals. <laughs> <laughs> he had a friend who lived by a river a little way distant. One day the friend came to visit, and all of a sudden there was a loud roar from a jungle animal. And the friend who came to visit sort of jumped, was startled. 
This holy man said, Oh, I see you're still carrying it with you. Meaning a certain fear or right, resistance. Okay, the friend visits, goes back to his place by the river. He knows that this holy man is going to come visit him. What he does is he paints on a rock, which was the seat, and he knew this person was going to sit on, painted on the rock a very beautiful picture of the Buddha. And the holy man comes back, and he goes to the rock, and he's about to sit down, and he sees the picture of the Buddha and he hesitates a moment. And the friend says, oh, I see you're still carrying it with you. <laughs> Just that moment of discriminating mind, you don't sit on a Buddha. Right? That kind of duality. It's said that in that moment, his mind was totally freed. He went back to his place in the forest. The birds no longer dropped the flowers. Right? He had lost the aura of holiness expressing that quality of invisibility, of emptiness, just being, simplicity. The men and women in whom Tao acts without impediment harms no other being by their actions. Yet they do not know themselves to be kind or gentle. The men and women in whom the Tao acts without impediment do not bother with their own interests and do not despise others who do. They do not struggle to make money nor make a virtue of poverty. They go their way without relying on others and do not pride themselves on walking alone. While they do not follow the crowd, they won't complain of those who do. Rank and reward make no appeal to them. Disgrace and shame do not deter them. They are not always looking for right and wrong, always deciding yes or no. The ancients said, therefore, the men and women of Tao remain unknown. Perfect virtue produces nothing. No self is true self, and the greatest one is nobody. Completing the mandala, arriving at the totality of oneself, is in many ways to become nobody. The one danger of this particular model <coughs> is that people begin to think of it in a very linear progression. And it's not exactly like that. It's more like a spiral than a circle. And you'll find, as you probably have already, that you go through many of these spaces at whatever level you go around. And at times you experience the joy, and at times the fear, and at times the stillness. And at times you experience the way you relate to other people, at times you become invisible, and then you go through all those things again and again and again. Right? And it's more like a spiral, each time experiencing it with a different level of perception of profundity. 
there is a great grace in experiencing one's life in terms of the totality of the pattern, of the rhythm. It makes the mind very expansive and it takes a lot of joy in the unfolding of the practice. Sometimes it's helpful to treat your mind to that kind of view. Any questions? Yeah, when you get to this place where there's no place to go, there's nothing to do, it seems like there's a danger there of not relating to the suffering of other people. And I think that maybe that's that's probably why they closed the monasteries in China and Southeast Asia, because because people could become open to that danger. And so, like, in bringing meditation to the West, do you think that uh, that, that will happen again, that the monasteries will become again? I don't think it ever happened. Which is to say that For people who have truly experienced that totality and have come to that emptiness, stillness, right, emptiness of self, at that level, emptiness and love mean exactly the same thing. Right? Because there is no division then between self and other. There is no separation, no distinction. You don't have to... have protestations to your arm that you love it and are going to care for it. Because you feel it as part of yourself, it's the natural relationship you have. Like you don't put it in a fire. In the same way, when we don't limit ourselves by making a boundary as this being self and everyone else is out there, when that boundary Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.